Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Legends of Surgery. I'm your host, Tyler Rouse. It's hard for me to believe, but we have now reached the 100th episode. Well, technically, as I've done some bonus episodes, we're actually past 100, but regardless, this feels like a milestone. And thanks to all of you, dear listeners, whether you've been here from the beginning or just getting into the show. To mark this auspicious occasion, it seems fitting to cover one of the most important figures in the history of medicine and surgery in the Western world, a towering figure who's been given the titles of Father of Modern Medicine, Anatomy, Experimental Physiology, Systematic Medicine, Pharmacy, and of course, Surgery, to name but a few. His influence on medicine lasted 1,400 years, and the sheer volume of writing both by him and about him is incredible. As this is a History of Surgery podcast, this episode will have a fairly narrow scope highlighting his achievements in surgery and anatomy primarily. But trust me, that is more than enough ground to cover. In fact, I'm going to break this up into two episodes. In this one, we'll focus on Galen the person, with a mostly biographical slant, and in the next one, we'll look at his impact on anatomy and surgery. So let's find out all about Galen in this episode of Legends of Surgery. Let's begin with a quote from Galen to gain a sense of his philosophy of the practice of medicine. Quote, Since the greatest of the arts surpasses a lifetime, so that a person is unable, however hardworking he may be, to both begin it and arrive at its end. For this reason, it is better to leave behind whatever one knows in written works for those who come afterward, explaining accurately and concisely and surely the entire nature of the things that are taught. End quote. Now here he was referring to Hippocrates' works, but it certainly applies to Galen as well, who considered himself both a physician and a philosopher. So let's travel all the way back to the Roman Empire near its zenith during the Pax Romana, or Roman peace, an unusual time of relative harmony and prosperity. Now around the time of Galen's birth, the empire covered an estimated 5 million square kilometers, or just under 2 million square miles, And within his lifetime, the population would reach over 60 million people. It extended throughout most of Europe, even into England, into parts of the Middle East and North Africa. Into this huge empire was Claudius Galen born in the year 129 CE, said to be around the fall equinox, likely September in our modern day calendar. The city of his birth was called Pergamum, and it was considered the jewel in the Greek Middle East's crown of cities in what is now Western Turkey. It boasted a famous library that was second in size only to that of Alexandria in Egypt, where Galen would visit, but we're getting ahead of ourselves. Pergamum had been a Greek city probably since the 8th century BCE and became part of the Roman province of Asia. There's our first side note. The name Asia is actually a Greek word, which is a bit strange as we now think of Asia the continent, which of course does not contain Greece. Asia was first used by the famous Greek historian Herodotus and referred to either Anatolia in modern-day Turkey, or the Persian Empire, and later the Roman province in that area. Now, the time of Galen, Pergamum boasted around 120,000 residents, and its temple of Asclepius, the god of medicine, was renowned throughout the Roman Empire and beyond. In fact, Asclepius was the city's most important god, and was sometimes called the god of Pergamum. Galen would refer to him as his ancestral god. Now, Galen's father, named Nikon, and his grandfather, were architects, and the family was quite wealthy. They considered themselves Greek despite living in the Roman Empire, and it's likely that Galen did not even speak Latin, as every educated person in Rome and most of their slaves spoke Greek. 
Now, we don't know much about Galen's early life as he provided no autobiographical information before his mid-teens and did not write about his private life. In fact, there was never any mention of a wife or concubine, child, male or female lover, or siblings. Despite how much we know about his public life and work, it's amazing how little we know about the man himself. What we do know is that his father arranged a very broad liberal arts type education. Oops, time for another quick side note. What is a liberal arts education? You're probably thinking about painting, sculpture, maybe music, etc. But those are the fine arts. Liberal arts date back to ancient Greece and Rome. In this context, liberal arts refers to liberalis, meaning to be free. They believe that to truly be a free citizen, your education must emphasize civic duty and the development of the whole human being to their fullest potential through the study of grammar, rhetoric, and logic. This was typically done through the Socratic method, and we'll come back to that in a second. Today, the liberal arts have come to include subjects like history, literature, creative writing, philosophy, and more. So why am I emphasizing this point? Well, there have been a number of articles talking about the importance of a liberal arts education in the training of surgeons. The idea is that, as one article put it, quote, the liberal arts are concerned with the human condition. It encourages humility, sensitivity, compassion, respect for the truth, the desire for continuous self-improvement, openness to criticism, and the ability to think and communicate clearly, end quote. Now, these seem like important traits to surgeons. I think you'd agree. If you're interested in exploring this further, there are a number of articles discussing the need for liberal arts training in surgical residency. So let's go back to the Socratic method. This is the teaching method made famous by the philosopher Socrates and utilizes a question and dialogue format to challenge students to support their argument and to stimulate critical thinking. Anyone listening who's had any type of medical training may recognize this as what is colloquially known as pimping. Now, this is particularly common in the operating room. Again, I went down a bit of a rabbit hole here and read a number of papers comparing the two with the overwhelming consensus that the Socratic method and pimping are, in fact, not the same. But by considering the difference, there's an opportunity to improve how we teach medical students. Again, I'd encourage you to look up some of these papers if you're interested. But enough philosophy, let's get back to our subject of Galen. So Galen's father arranged for him to study with the philosophers in Pergamum, beginning at the age of 14. And Galen continued to seek out teachings from philosophers throughout his life, making the argument that all truly educated doctors were also philosophers, including the great Hippocrates himself. At the age of 16, Galen's father had a dream that would alter the history of Western medicine for centuries. Now let me explain. In the ancient world, people believed that the gods spoke to them in dreams, and that their commands should be followed. Dreams could also be the soul's reflections on humoral imbalances in the body and thus useful for diagnoses. The soul could even prophesize the future. Patients would travel to the temples of Asclepius, known as Asclepions, which were healing temples in the ancient Greek world, which were in essence the precursor to hospitals. Now there they would be induced, possibly by opium, into what was called incubatio, or temple sleep. In this state, the patient would receive guidance from either the god of healing or one of his children. Upon waking, the dream would be interpreted by priests who would prescribe a cure often related to diet, exercise, cleansing baths, purges, and other simple changes. But there's some evidence that some minor surgery was being done there too. So Nikon, Galen's father, had either one or a series of vivid dreams where Asclepius himself told him that his son must divert his efforts to medicine and healing. 
and thus began Galen's journey to becoming one of the most famous physicians of all time. His first teachers were local physicians, and his education not only involved intellectual pursuits of theory, but also practical demonstrations in clinical experience. Galen learned anatomy by studying living patients, as the dissection of human corpses was taboo and thus rarely practiced, which will be important later. Now, following his father's death in 148 CE, when Galen was just 19, he left Pergamum to visit more well-known physicians throughout the Roman Empire. By this point, he'd already written his first treatise, called On the Anatomy of the Uterus, which was composed for a midwife, and still survives. The knowledge would have had to have come from animal dissections. Some physicians rejected anatomical dissection, believing that close observation of wounds in living persons was an adequate method of studying anatomy. His father had left him a large estate, and so he was able to travel and study without concern for income. Galen's journey took him first to a city called Smyrna, now known as Izmir in Turkey, where he studied with the physician Pelops. Galen stated, quote, When I began to study medicine, I repudiated all pleasure. I spent all of my time in the study of medical practice, deliberating and reflecting on medicine. Generally, I have gone without sleep at night in order to examine the treasures left to us by the ancients, end quote. After a few other stops, including the Greek city of Corinth, Galen eventually made his way to Alexandria in Egypt sometime between 151 and 153 CE, where he remained until 157 CE. The city was held in high esteem in the ancient world as a place of an ancient tradition of medical research, particularly in anatomy, and attracted the greatest medical minds of the era. So let's talk a little bit more about Alexandria. It was founded on the Nile River Delta by Alexander the Great in 331 BCE and became a Roman province in 30 BCE after the defeat and suicide of Cleopatra. Now here's a fun fact. Cleopatra lived closer to us in time than she did to the building of the pyramids. Anyways, in Galen's time, the population was probably second only to that of Rome itself in the empire, estimated at around 500,000 and was famous for its lighthouse on the island of Pharos, one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. So let's quickly cover the history of the famous Library of Alexandria. Now, the city itself was selected as the site for a new capital in the location of a small fishing village by Alexander the Great, hence the name. The library was launched in 288 BCE and was called the Museon, meaning Temple of the Muses, which is where our word museum comes from. It was part academy, part research center, and part library. It was said to have held at its peak approximately 700,000 scrolls from all over the ancient world, the equivalent of more than 100,000 modern books. The library was open to scholars from all cultures and lasted for six centuries. One article I read called it, quote, the single greatest accumulation of human knowledge in history, end quote. Tragically, it was destroyed. Imagine the lost knowledge and where we could have been if it had survived. Oh well. The actual cause of the destruction is unclear, as it actually burned numerous times over the centuries. In 391 CE, Emperor Theodosius I, in an attempt to wipe out paganism, destroyed some of it. In 640 CE, the city of Alexandria came under Muslim rule, and the Caliph Omar asserted that the library's contents would, quote, either contradict the Koran, in which case they are hearsay, or they will agree with it, so they are superfluous, end quote. The legend is that the manuscripts were gathered together and used to fuel the city's bathhouses, keeping them heated for six months. But this should be taken with some skepticism, as the report comes from a Christian over 300 years after the fact. 
Some scholars believe the library may not have even existed at this point. But in the time of Galen, it very much did, and there was a medical school in the city which had been founded during the 3rd century BCE. The physicians Herophilus and Erasistratus were the most well-known anatomists to come out of the Alexandrian school. They were the first and almost the only physicians in the ancient world to dissect humans, or at least the only ones whose discoveries based on human anatomy were ever published or known. The legend is that they also vivisected humans, and that their victims were condemned criminals provided by the Ptolemies, who were the rulers of Egypt at the time. Galen himself believed in the value of human dissection, which he saw as a holy grail of sorts, but he likely was not able to practice it himself. He did see human bones in Alexandria where they would have been used to demonstrate anatomy, and even urged his students to visit the city to see for themselves. Galen did take every opportunity to observe human anatomy. For example, when a river overflowed and washed away a tomb with its fully articulated skeleton, or when by the roadside he happened across the remains, or so the locals claimed, of a bandit murdered by his would-be victim. So, as mentioned earlier, Galen left Alexandria in 157 CE, then at the age of 27, returning home to Pergamum. There he was appointed to the post of physician to the gladiators. Gladiatorial games were held every summer, and Galen would treat their wounds as well as care for their general health during the year while they were training. I came across this story on how he got the position, and be warned, it is a bit gruesome. The priest who selected him had witnessed a dramatic public spectacle put on by Galen. He had performed a vivisection, disemboweling a live monkey. He sliced open the abdomen, brought out the intestines, and then invited the physicians present to replace them and secure them back in place. None dared to even attempt it, and so Galen performed the feat, and then, just to really drive the point home, severed one of the monkey's arteries. Again, the challenge was put to the crowd to repair it, which none accepted. So Galen ligated the artery to stop the hemorrhage, proving his skill and daring. In my research, I learned that medical contests and vivisections were a form of entertainment in the Roman world, and were even divided into four categories of competition. Surgery, medical instruments, verbal composition, and problems, or problemata in Latin. The Greek historian Plutarch of Charonia, who lived in the late 1st century CE, stated that some doctors, quote, perform surgery in the theaters in order to attract patients, end quote. A surgery certainly has a long history of spectacle, and that might make a good episode on its own. But for now, let's dig a little deeper about gladiators and some of what we know of Galen's experience caring for them. Now, the name comes from the Latin word gladius, which means sword. This is also the root word for the flower gladiolus, as its leaves are described as sword-shaped. The body of the sternum is also called the gladiolus, as it does sort of look like a short sword. Now, gladiators originally fought at funerals, and the first recorded battle was in 264 BCE, when three pairs fought at the funeral of the Roman consul Junius Brutus Para. This concept was actually copying a tradition from the people that lived in Italy before the Romans, the Etruscans. As part of the funeral ceremony, a pair of warriors would fight to the death to honor the warlike spirit of their deceased leader. In the Roman world, the idea of putting on a show to honor deceased patriarchs grew as wealthy families competed for prestige, and it became a political tool, as senators up for election would often honor long-deceased relatives to gain favor with the populace. The games reached their zenith during the imperial era, becoming the massive spectacle we associate with ancient Rome. Back in Galen's Pergamum, there was an amphitheater 
which was built in the first half of the second century CE, which sat 25,000 people, which was considered medium-sized for the times. Now here's Galen's description of the gladiator's diet, quote, The gladiators in my homeland eat mostly this food, which was a concoction of fava beans and boiled barley, every day, becoming fleshy in the condition of their body. But the flesh is not compacted and dense like pig's meat, but rather somehow more flaccid, end quote. The idea was that by accumulating fat, there was protection from serious injuries while allowing for showy surface wounds. But, of course, many gladiators had far more serious injuries. Skeletons of gladiators were discovered in a cemetery in Ephesus in modern-day Turkey, which showed cranial injuries, some of which had healed. Some were from blunt force, others were sharp punctures from swords or tridents. Galen's surgical skills were really put to the test during this time of his life. A common site of injury was the front of the thigh severing muscle and tendon. The old treatment for this was to bathe the wounds in hot water and applying a plaster of wheat flour boiled in water and oil. Galen rejected this method, stating, quote, The patients were not treated, but rather destroyed, for very few of them were saved, and those became lame. End quote. Instead, Galen omitted the hot water and used frequent application of oil together with a remedy of his own creation, which he claimed saved all the gladiators in his care in his first year of practice. This involved placing linen cloths that had been soaked in wine on the wounds and then covering the cloths in soft sponges, which he moistened day and night. Galen even devised a method to collect the excess wine that dripped down from the wound in an empty skin to reuse it. It has been postulated that the ethanol and the acidity of the wine may have provided an antimicrobial effect leading to his remarkable results. As for stitching up the wounds, Galen described how transverse or crosswise wounds to the thigh had to be sutured because the muscles, when severed, would separate, whereas a bandage is sufficient to close a vertical wound. Amazingly, there are even stories of him operating on abdominal wounds. One such gladiator was nearly disemboweled with the omentum projecting from the wound. Galen had to remove it, quote, almost the whole thing, end quote, as he wrote. He would later describe gastroraphy, meaning replacing the intestines prolapsed from wounds to the abdomen and repairing the wound surgically. The suturing techniques he used even included mattress sutures, which will be familiar with those listeners with surgical training, and he recommended full thickness sutures for abdominal repair rather than closing in layers as you would for those with thigh wounds, which makes sense as these poor warriors would have had essentially no anesthesia and their abdominal contents would be trying to escape. To that end, Galen did describe instructing a skilled assistant to retract with their hands. For sutures, Galen used a substance called Gaelic in Rome, which was imported from Gaul, but historians do not know exactly what it was. Since it was not available outside of the capital city, silk was considered the second best choice, which could be procured from wealthy women. Failing that, he would use anything that didn't decay easily, such as dried gut. For instruments, we can speculate about what was available around this time from the graves in Rome's eastern provinces, and in particular, the houses buried by the eruption of Mount Vesuvius in 79 CE. Scoops, spoons, spatulae, hooks, forceps, scalpels, shears, catheters, bone saws, trephines, chisels, levers, cupping vessels, cauteries, and so on have all been found. Galen himself wrote that he lost prototypes for instruments of his own design in the fire that destroyed parts of Rome in 192 CE. Getting back to his record, Galen claimed that in his first two years, no gladiators died in his care. Yet elsewhere he wrote that he lost two in his first year, but none under a later priest who reappointed him to the position. 
Galen was quite proud of his record and that five consecutive priests honored him with the position. However, all things must come to an end, and his work caring for the gladiators did so in the autumn of 161 CE. By the following year, he was in the Eternal City at the young age of 32. At this point in history, it is estimated that the population of Rome was around 1 million people, likely the largest city in the world at the time. The competition among physicians was fierce, and reputation was everything. However, the large size of the city allowed for specialization more than anywhere else, including many types of surgery, such as for hernias, bladder stones, and cataracts. Galen himself quickly developed a reputation for being a savvy diagnostician, with one person stating that his diagnoses and prognoses were, quote, more like divination than medicine, end quote. Galen was also a master of anatomy, and likely from the beginning of his stay in Rome performed public dissections and vivisections, which he himself referred to as exhibitions or displays, highlighting the performance element of these events. Other times he would demonstrate anatomy for a small circle of friends, including many influential members of the elite class of philosophers and politicians that ruled the social circles of the capital. In fact, Galen's fame continued to grow until he reached the upper echelons of society, including the emperor, but we're getting ahead of ourselves. Galen's influence on anatomy would last for centuries, and is such a massive topic that we'll save it for the next episode, as mentioned, and even then we won't really be able to cover every single thing. For the meantime, let's cover just one of these public anatomical demonstrations, this one done for a powerful politician named Titus Flavius Bothus. This particular example was looking at the anatomy of voice, and a number of pigs and young goats were gathered as specimens, as their voices were considered loud. Galen proposed to demonstrate the function of the recurrent laryngeal nerves, which control the vocal cords, despite them being, in his words, quote, the finest nerves, a pair of them like hairs, end quote. Over a number of days, Galen performed a series of vivisections showing these nerves and the muscles and nerves used in breathing and phonation, which is the production of speech sounds. He would cut open the pig without entering the pleural membrane, which surrounds the lungs, cutting the intercostal muscles, which lie between the ribs, showing how the pig then could not exhale forcefully enough to make a sound. Taking it a step further, Galen would hook the individual intercostal nerves out of the muscles surrounding the spine, then ligated the nerves with a needle and thread, showing that he could cut off and revive the pig's ability to make noise at will, which must have blown the minds of those watching. As cruel and awful as these demonstrations were, they certainly further cemented Galen's reputation as a master surgeon and anatomist. There were other examples of vivisection, but they're pretty disturbing, so let's move on. Galen studied the anatomy of pigs, goats, cattle, and monkeys, but that last one is most important as he considered them the most anatomically similar to humans, in particular the Barbary Mackays and olive baboons, which were imported to Rome from Egypt or West Africa. Now this led to some anatomical errors that would stand until corrected by Vesalius in the 16th century, see podcast 81. A fun aside, Galen claimed to have dissected an elephant, which would have presented some serious practical challenges. Another anecdote that helped develop Galen's reputation is worth quickly telling. A young boy, the son of a famous slave named Marillus, who wrote well-received theatrical performances, was injured while wrestling. A common occurrence, I'm sure. Now, even Galen himself wrote about his own wrestling injury and acromioclavicular joint separation. The boy developed an abscess to the sternum, which other physicians failed in their attempts to drain, 
leading to a possible fistula forming. Months went by, and he became quite ill, and so Galen was called in to treat what was almost certainly osteomyelitis, or infection of the bone. It was agreed that the infected part had to be cut out, but none dared the attempt out of fear of accidentally entering the chest cavity, which would be fatal. But then Galen stepped up, saying, quote, I said that I would excise the sternum without creating what the physicians, for their part, were calling a perforation, end quote. He removed the affected bone, but discovered that the pericardium underneath, which is the sac holding the heart, was also infected, and so Galen cut that out too. At that point, Galen wrote, quote, We saw the heart as clearly as we see it when we deliberately lay it bare during animal dissection, end quote. Imagine that. We're talking about an era without anesthesia, without antiseptic practices, without antibiotics, without even a great understanding of physiology. And Galen is performing what could technically be called open heart surgery. Amazingly, the patient survived and was still alive many years later, as we know from a later writing by Galen. The wound had closed and scar tissue covered the exposed heart. Now let's get back to Galen's life in Rome. This first period lasted four years to the year 166 CE. It was in the summer of that year that Galen fled the city amongst rumors of a plague moving towards Italy from the east. He ordered one of his slaves to stay behind in his house in Rome and sell it, and headed south to make people believe he was going to his country property in Campania. This departure was done quickly and in secret. Galen was concerned about the increasingly intense rivalries he had with other physicians, and about the possibility that those in charge of the city might press him into service during the plague, and so he returned to his hometown of Pergamum. Galen spent two years there, and it was mostly spared the ravages of the plague. But near the end of 168 CE, he received a summons from the emperors, now, at this point in history, Rome had two co-emperors, Marcus Aurelius and his adopted brother Lucius Verus, to return to the capital as a military campaign was being prepared and his services were required. Galen was sent to the northern Italian city of Aquilia, which was battling with tribal groups from the north. When he arrived, the city was overrun with plague victims, and soon thereafter the emperors fled back to Rome, although Lucius would not survive the journey back. He died either from food poisoning or from the plague. And as a quick side note, this plague I keep referring to has been called the Antonian Plague, or the Plague of Galen, as he is the only contemporary source who gave a description of the symptoms based on his observations made while in Aquilia. It is estimated to have wiped out a quarter to a third of the population of the Roman Empire, around 60 to 70 million people. Scholars suspect that it was either the measles or smallpox. And I'll just point out here, that one of these has been controlled for the most part through mass vaccinations, and the other has been declared eradicated from the earth on May 8th of 1980 by the World Health Assembly, also through mass vaccination. Just saying hooray for vaccines. So following the terrible plague, Galen was able to avoid joining Marcus Aurelius on the front, but instead was charged with the care of Commodus, Marcus's only living son, which provided respite from the intense rivalries of other physicians in the capital, for a period of about seven years. This allowed him to focus on writing and research, although much of it was destroyed in a fire in 192 CE. This fire hit the Temple of Peace, which is a public square on Rome's main street, the Via Sacra. It also destroyed the nearby storehouses, which held some imperial archives and was kept under military guard, which is probably why Galen used it in the first place, as well as damaging a number of nearby public libraries. A large portion of his library, supply of medicines, 
Medical instruments and wax molds for casting new instruments that he'd invented were lost to history forever. Let me quote Galen himself on this tragedy. Another great burden has been laid upon me, for after I had written out the books of the work on anatomical dissections, as I was very nearly at the end of them, it so happened that there broke out that great fire in which the Temple of Peace was burnt down together with many warehouses and storehouses, in which were stored those books of mine on anatomical dissections, together with all my other books. None of my works survived except what had already handed over to be transcribed, end quote. Imagine the knowledge lost. Now this hit Galen hard, but there is an, another incredible story which I have to share. A copy of a long-lost treatise he wrote on the subject called On Consolation from Grief was discovered in a monastery in Thessaloniki, Greece, in 2005. Now this copy dated back to the 15th century. Amazing. Galen did not mention any specific events after the fire of 192 CE, with the exception of the secular games of 204 CE, which were held to mark the commencement of a new seculum, or generation, which lasted for three days and three nights, and occurred roughly every hundred years, meant to represent a period of time that equaled the maximum human lifespan. That's kind of weird, right? So the Latin word secularis meant worldly, pertaining to a generation or age, which evolved to the French secular, meaning living in the world, not belonging to a religious order or belonging to the state, from which we get the modern meaning of secular. Etymology is fun. Anyways, Galen is thought to have lived to the age of 70, although given the amount of writing he produced after the fire, when he would have been 63, and other sources, some scholars believe he lived far beyond this already old age for the time. But we don't know where he died, when he died, or where his tomb lies. Yet his legend certainly lives on. Okay, time for another Sutra Tale. Now, today's topic comes to us from a general surgery resident training in New York State named Giuseppe Serena. He co-authored an article on the surgeon and anatomist Carl Tolt on the 100th anniversary of his death, which was published in The American Surgeon. If the name rings a bell, it is likely because you've heard of the white line of Tolt, a crucial anatomical landmark in colonic resection operations. But before we get to that, let's do a little biographical background. Carl Florian Tolt was born in Italy on May 3, 1840. His medical training began in Vienna at a medical surgical military academy known as Josephinum from 1858 to 1864. Now let's take a second to talk about this institution. It was founded in 1784 by the Holy Roman Emperor Joseph II with the purpose of training imperial military surgeons. It lasted until 1874 when its functions were moved to other institutions. The building still stands today, where it houses the Josephinum Medical Museum of the Medical University of Vienna. And fun fact, the museum boasts the second largest collection of wax anatomical models in the world, totaling 1,192. These were originally made to teach anatomy to medical students in an era when procuring a fresh body for dissection was often difficult, and in many places illegal. The wax models were created in the artist workshops of Florence, Italy, and from there carried over the Alps by pack mule, and finally arriving in Vienna by boat after traveling down the Danube River. And did you really think that I'd mention the second largest collection without telling you about the largest collection of wax anatomical models? Not surprisingly, this is in Florence, in the La Specula, Europe's oldest public museum. 
It started as the personal collection of the Medici family and opened as a public museum in 1775 to anyone who, quote, looked clean, end quote. Anyways, we're way off topic. Back to Tolt. Following his training at the academy, he was appointed head of the ENT and ophthalmology departments of a military hospital in Fair Verona, where we lay our scene. He then worked in the field at the Battle of Custoza, part of the Third Italian War of Independence. Following this experience, Tolt held a number of positions in Vienna, focused on histology and anatomy, eventually moving to Prague, where he would continue his career climb and produce a textbook on histology and an anatomy atlas, the latter of which was so popular that it went through 15 editions and was published in English in 1919. But let's get to the heart of the matter, or rather the colon. Tolt described a white line sandwiched between two layers of mesothelium, which separates the mesocolon from the underlying retroperitoneum. So who cares? Well, this is actually an important surgical landmark that helps to mobilize the colon during colorectal surgeries. It is identified by retracting or holding back the colon medially and can then be opened by cautery or scissors to mobilize the colon. Now, Tolt returned to Vienna in 1884, where he eventually became the dean of the medical faculty of the University of Vienna and was responsible for the creation of the Anatomical Institutes and the Anatomical Museum, which, among other treasures, holds a collection of skulls from the famous Austrian anatomist Joseph Hertel. This collection was important in refuting the pseudoscience of phrenology, from the ancient Greek phren, meaning mind, same root as schizophrenia, split mind, and logos, meaning knowledge. Simply put, it is the belief that by studying the shape and size of the cranium, a person's character and mental ability can be assessed. Here's a quote from Hertel on the subject, quote, It is untrue that from the shape of the skull and certain projections from it, one can infer the abilities, capacities, virtues, and vices of a human being. I do not want to object to the general principle of the dependence of cranial form on the underlying brain, but the functions of the individual parts of the brain are so puzzling that a doctrine which attempts to delimit the abilities of a human being by measuring the skull could only be invented by idiots for idiots, end quote. Tell us how you really feel. Okay, moving on. Tolt retired a few years early due to chronic eczema of the hands, likely from handling preserving fluids such as formalin over many years, which does imply that he did this without gloves. In retirement, his interest turned to anthropology, and he studied prehistoric relics throughout Europe. Carl Tolt passed away on November 13, 1920, at the age of 80. Now this wraps up another episode of Legends of Surgery. I hope you enjoyed it. Next time, we will continue our coverage of Galen with a focus on his impact on anatomy and surgery. In the meantime, please rate the podcast on iTunes or wherever you download episodes and leave a comment there. Or follow me on Twitter at Surgery Legends, like us on Facebook at Legends of Surgery, or send an email to legendsofsurgery at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you about your thoughts on the podcast or ideas for future episodes. As always, thanks for listening.